Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Minute where we marvel at the white text on black background of Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 2, which begins with opening credits and it ends with stock footage of oil derricks. So we start off Minute 2 with the lingering name of Dean Semler, and that transitions into the name of our production supervisor, Patrick Clayton. So Patrick Clayton was a London-born man who went on to work on several recognizable features, including Interview with the Vampire and Event Horizon and the Laura Croft movie, mostly as a second unit director and or assistant director. He actually ended up doing 53 different projects before seemingly retiring in 2008, if I'm looking at the right thing here. That reminds me of a West Wing quote, because most things remind me of a West Wing quote, that he spent his entire career being like, you know, a a behind the scenes guy of a level where you have a lot of responsibility and you get a lot of stuff done and you're important to the movie, but you don't necessarily get a lot of credit. Yeah. It reminds me of a West Wing episode where President Bartlett says to Josh Lyman that you don't want to be the guy. You want to be the guy that the guy relies on. Mm -hmm. And it seems like... I'm sorry, what was his name? Patrick Clayton. Patrick Clayton is one of those guys Yeah. that he wants to be one of the people who make it happen for George Miller, for mm-hmm. these other directors, and have a hand in doing something great, maybe just not necessarily in the front, the very front of the pack. Absolutely, because Byron Kennedy can't be there all the time. He needs someone to back him up and make sure that everything is rolling smoothly. So after we see Patrick Clayton, we move on to Brian May as the composer and conductor for the score of this movie. And he is a returning name. He did the score for Mad Max, and George Miller brought him back again. Excellent. In between Mad Max and The Road Warrior, Brian May worked in the music department for the movie Gallipoli, which also released ah. in 1981. I think we'll end up watching Gallipoli during the next that's, hiatus. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. It, it, we really should. Yeah, because not only does it have Mel Gibson in it, so there's a direct connection there, but it's also like a really important film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's way down the line, though. It is. Way down the line. So, after we see Brian May, Byron Kennedy's name pops up as the producer, and of course he was the... Kennedy in the Kennedy Miller team returning to keep a close tab on his buddy George. Did uh, Byron Kennedy pass before Thunderdome? Byron Kennedy passed in a plane crash in 1983. So Thunderdome is dedicated to Byron Kennedy. Okay, so he was not part of Thunderdome. So this is his last film, at least least last Mad Max film. Right. After Road Warrior, Byron Kennedy went on to be the producer for a couple of TV shows. But yeah, I don't think he ever produced another film after The Road Warrior. And finally, after we see Byron Kennedy's name fade out, we get directed by George Miller in his soft more effort. Do you want to say anything about George Miller before we move on? No. 
I feel like we talk a lot about George Miller, so okay. I, I think we can pass this opportunity by. Yeah, we did. We spoke a lot about George Miller yesterday, so I think we can yeah. keep going because he's constantly going to be brought up. Yes, so we're going to talk about him all the time. I don't think he's ever going to miss out on a chance to be attributed or <laughs> no. lauded for something. So as George Miller's name fades from screen, we are now looking at a plain black screen. And then a voice starts speaking. And he says, my life fades. And this is the voice of New Zealand-born actor Harold Bygent. And I'm saying Bygent because of the way his last name is spelled, B-A-I-G-E-N-T. If it was A-G-E-N-T, it would be pronounced agent, but with the I in there, I said Bajent. I will be corrected by our listeners, because they are reliable that way. So, Harold Bajent was active from 1976 to 1994, and the top four productions that he's best known for are, of course, this movie that we're watching, The Road Warrior. He's also well known for 1981's Gallipoli, where he was a camel driver, kind of like Max in the third movie, turned into a camel driver, but that's for another time. He was also well known for 1987's Slate, Win, and Me, where he played Sammy. And of course, 1990's Golden Braid, where he played Clockmaker. Anyway, so as our narrator says that first line of the movie, my life fades, the vision dims, we fade up from the black onto an image of Max standing kind of on top of a hill in the middle of a road. And he's looking kind of roughed up, more or less. And the narrator continues, All that remains are memories. I remember a time of chaos, ruined dreams, this wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior, the man we called Max. So this brings up a point where I want to jump in and talk about timelines. Okay, let's do this. So there is a fairly easy to see timeline as you go from Mad Max to The Road Warrior to Beyond Thunderdome. When you just take those three films, it's very easy. One happens after the other. Then you throw in Fury Road. You change actors from Mel Gibson to Tom Hardy, and it kind of jumbles things up. And the landscape and the way everything looks, it alters. And so there's a lot of discussion, a lot of disagreement in the fandom about what is the official timeline of Mad Max. Now, there is one that is presented in the Vertigo comics that were put out that kind of arrange the movies in order and kind of explain what happened in between each one and how they all fit together. And that's all well and good. But I subscribe to a different theory, something called Campfire Theory. And Campfire Theory basically suggests that Max was a man, but his story, the story that we see in Road Warrior, Fury Road, and Beyond Thunderdome, might not necessarily be 100% true, might not be 100% his story, because in Road Warrior and Beyond Thunderdome, those stories are told by narrators that are not Max. This theory loses a bit of footing when we think about Fury Road and the fact that Max is narrating himself in that movie. But at the same time, I just love the idea that survivors in the wasteland, in this instance, it's our narrator. In the next movie, it'll be someone else. But they are getting to the point in their life where they are telling a story about a person that did something important for that group of people. Now, there's an interesting way that these movies go about this in that Max is always our POV character, but the actual person telling the story is not Max. And so it's a really cool way to structure everything. It really releases us 
from having to be bogged down about, okay, well, how old is Max in this? How much has the world deteriorated in this short span of time? How can everything go that crazy that quickly? It releases us from all of those worries. We don't need to concern ourselves with that because this is just a campfire story that someone is telling. I really like this theory because one genre of literature that I very much enjoy is mythology. And with the advent of podcasting, there are a couple of podcasts that I listen to that focus on mythological stories and folklore. They run into this problem as well, where they have all these different sources and they, they conflict. So their responsibility as a storyteller, as a narrator, is just to make the best of what they have. Tell the story in a cohesive way, do do the best they can. Mm -hmm. So this narrator, while he's an unreliable narrator, I do give him credit for doing the best that he can. Right. There are certain details that go along with the character of Max, the interceptor, the fact that he was, you know, a cop, the fact that he's got the bum knee. Yes. Like there are the details. The sleeve missing from his jacket. You know, I'm... I really like that you said that because in my notes, I note the unreliable narrator and the fact that he said, we called this man Max. Well, if the narrator is unreliable, how do we know this is really Max Rokotansky? Right. Well, there's the details about the the black on black mm -hmm. and his injuries, the bum knee, the missing the sleeve of his jacket. That's how we know it's Max. Yeah key details that that reaffirm what we're assuming. Mm -hmm. And you can do that with a lot of cinematic heroes. You think of people like Indiana Jones, I think is a good parallel as far as 1980s action characters. Indiana Jones, he has the fedora, the whip, the leather jacket. Like he's got those affectations, those props that mm -hmm. kind of make that character. And you can take something as blank as, let's say, a voodoo doll in the hands of a child in a temple that may be doom-like in some way. <laughs> and you just put the little jacket, the hat, and the whip on that doll, and that is Indiana Jones. You can think of, you know, Luke Skywalker in the Star Wars movies. He goes from, you know, dressing like a farm boy to his flight suit to finally being a Jedi. But across that trilogy, there are things that stay the same. He's got his blonde hair. He's got his lightsaber. Like these little details and props that he has make him recognizable. And so you watch a later on movie like The Force Awakens, you know, he's a legend, Luke Skywalker, you know, famed Jedi Knight. There are probably stories that exist in that universe of things that Luke Skywalker is said to have done that he probably never did. They just attributed it to him because he's a legendary character. Mm -hmm. Because I saw somebody with a lightsaber do it. Exactly. And I'm using all of these modern examples, but you think back into antiquity and you could probably find the same exact thing. Yeah. Uh, the first one that comes to mind mentioned in a podcast I was listening to just today is Hercules and the, the lion head. Yeah. The Nemean lion. Yes. Thank you. The Nemean lion. And you know, he wore that everywhere 
forever. And it was part of his character. It's interesting that you should bring up Hercules and the Nemean Lion because in the Disney movie of Hercules, the animated one, he only wears the Nemean Lion for like one scene. Whereas you have the other Hercules movie starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson and he wears that lion for like most of the adverts. Like you see him wearing that line. Yep. I, I don't know if I should feel sad that I never watched the the Rock's version of the Hercules movie, but mm. I heard mixed things about it, so I feel like I can... I am partial to the Disney version of Hercules, oh, mostly because it's entertaining and it's got good music. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not accurate. No. I mean, there are bits that are accurate, but overall, it's not. Let's face it. If you're going it's, for accuracy, the episode of Wishbone where they talked about Hercules oh, was Wishbone more accurate amazing. than the Disney movie, for yeah. sure. Yes. <laughs> so, moving on from Campfire Theory, the narrator continues. He says, To understand who he was, you have to go back to another time, when the world was powered by the black fuel. And as he goes on to say this, we start seeing different shots. And these are all stock footage shots of... Oil derricks in land, oil oil derricks in water, just constant images of people pulling oil out of the ground. Now, oil is an incredibly important resource to the people in the Mad Max world, but as we can surmise from the narration, it was even more important to the people before the collapse. The idea that the entire world was run almost exclusively on oil. And, I mean, when you look back at the 1980s, it's like, yeah, of course, what else would it run on? And it kind of bums me out because now in a modern day, we've got so many alternatives. We've got, you know, safe nuclear, we've got solar, we've got wind, we've got coal. I mean, they had coal back then, but it's like they didn't have probably as big a coal plants as we have now. You know what I I mean? I I think coal can be lumped in with the idea of black fuel. Yeah. I think... I think they're talking about fossil fuels in general. Mm -hmm. I thought about this a lot, and I think kind of more so in the next minute when we get to talk about the history a little bit more, but their world is still very centered on vehicles needing fuel. So making this distinction between way back in the day when the world was obsessed with black fuel versus now, like, well, you guys are still obsessed with black fuel. Yeah, you could definitely argue that. That's definitely something that I put down in my notes as well. The idea that, you know, the world still pretty much runs on the black fuel, but you find that things are a bit more microeconomic as opposed to macroeconomic. The whole idea that the entire world ran on the black fuel and the idea of the trade of the black fuel, sharing it between nations, moving it around. And we're going to see specifically tomorrow, because tomorrow is where things really get moving, this idea that Mm -hmm. as soon as you upset those supply lines, everything falls apart. Yes. We get the chaos that the narrator was telling us about. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I want to talk about it more tomorrow, the like reading between the lines yeah. of this black fuel issue. Mm-hmm. And I think something that's going to be a challenge for us growing up in the 90s and not really being around for what society was like in the early 80s, trying to evaluate this the way they would have evaluated it back in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, society and the culture of oil is so different now. Yeah. So it's going to be a bit of a challenge, but I'm sure we'll manage. Yeah, the culture of oil embargoes and fuel shortages is really felt and was definitely felt by George Miller and Terry Hayes. And that's 
one of the main reasons they made the main conflict of this movie all about procuring oils because they saw firsthand what the lack of oil can do to people. And I like the idea that we're being shown so many oil derricks, the idea that pulling gas out of the ground and refining it was so important to these people because we're going to see another one of those later on in the movie when we finally get to the compound like they have refining technology and they have the pump and seeing how important it was to the pre-collapse civilization really hammers home how mind-bogglingly important it is to the post-collapse civilization that we see in this movie and i think time frame like real world time frame plays a huge part of that Mm -hmm. this movie coming out in the early 80s i think we were we were so much more reliant on fossil fuels back then. Not that we aren't now. We are very much reliant on fossil fuels now. But the technologies needed to replace fossil fuels are being worked on, are yep. being introduced to the public, are becoming more cost effective. So if this scenario were to happen today, it would play out differently. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the main things that I was thinking of when I was watching this little snippet of the intro. And more so for tomorrow's minute, but... Yeah, we're dipping a lot into tomorrow's minute. How much the situation would have been different had more alternatives been available. Yeah. You know, had someone like Elon Musk been involved. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if SpaceX was a thing before Road Warrior happened, things might have been a little different. So, like I said, we see a lot of stock footage of oil derricks and drills and spinning drills and things like that. And one of the final images we see of this minute is stock footage of refinery towers just belching smoke into the air. And so, sometimes when I see something, it reminds me of another thing. So, I think it's time for a trip to this thing reminds Rick of another thing corner. Get ready for a tangent. So when I was growing up in the 90s, there was a TV show on ABC called Home Improvement. It starred Tim Allen, Patricia Richardson, Richard Karn, etc., etc. It ran from 1991 to 1999. So this show was the 90s. And my family watched it religiously every time it came on. So I did a little digging to find out exactly what I think about when I see smokestacks. And it comes from season seven Episode 2, an episode entitled Clash of the Taylors, in which Tim Taylor's second son, the middle of the three that he has, gets really bent out of shape about pollution. Because in the 90s, we cared a lot about pollution. So he raises up a big ruckus about it, and it prompts Tim and his co-host Al, played by Richard Karn, to do a very special episode of their on-air TV show within a TV show, Tool Time, which is primarily financed by a tool company called Binford Tools. And so they take time out of the show to take questions from the audience. And so a lot of these questions are pollution-themed, and one lady in the audience stands up and she says, how come every time I drive by the plant, all that smoke is coming out of those stacks? And Tim and Al together say, they're smokestacks. And Tim goes on to say, what do you expect to be coming out of there? High karate? Some kind of whipped cream or something? What do you want? And every time I see a large stack of concrete with smoke billing out the top, that's the first thing I think of. They're smokestacks. I think that comment from Tim and Al actually has a lot in common with these 
few images we have of the oil derricks and the smokestacks before our minute cuts off. There are expectations. If if it's a smokestack, smoke is going to be coming out of it. That's what it does. Yeah. We build these oil derricks and these refineries. They pump oil and they make gasoline. That's what they do. And they have an effect. But by the time that they are built, the time has passed to worry about the effect they're having. Now they're there to do a job. Okay. They are there to produce smoke. They are there to produce oil. If we were going to be concerned about their impact on the environment, we should have thought about that before we built them. Not that that is a correct, you know, uh, a responsible point of view, and it's not my point of view, but that is what we're being presented with, that these, the oil derricks and the smokestacks are already a fact, and they're setting us up for things that we're going to learn in the next minute about society and how they feel about their oil. Okay. It's a good way to tie it back. Yeah, I didn't really have a path back from this thing reminds Rick of another thing corner. So <laughs> thank you for pulling us back in. I do what I can. So as we were preparing for this podcast, I went online to the Internet Movie Screenplay Database and I found a copy of... Mad Max 2 of Mad Max 2 The Road Warriors screenplay. Now, I'm not entirely familiar with the difference between a screenplay and a shooting script, but there are marked differences between what you see in the movie and what you see in the screenplay. I think that might be on one hand because I got it from the Internet Movie Screenplay Database and I don't necessarily know how accurate it is or where it necessarily came from, but I have it and we have it as reference. So we'll touch on that from time to time. While you were preparing for this minute, Julia, did you see anything in the screenplay that stood out to you as a marked difference about this beginning part? Well, the their narrator's monologue is different. It's pretty it pretty much says the same thing. The what's actually in the movie is much simpler, which I think is probably why it's different. Yeah. Simplify. Um, he talks about vision dims and all that remains are memories. They take me back to a place where the black pump sucked guzzoline from the earth, which I thought was interesting phrasing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk more about vocabulary tomorrow. So I won't get into it now. Um, references the the terrible battle that we fought the day we left that place forever, which is kind of annoyingly vague. Yeah. It's like, oh, I remember that thing we did once in that place. That's an interesting story, but I'm not going to tell you that story yet. Yeah. Uh, and then brings up Max, and then to understand who is who he is, we must go back to the last days of the old world. So it pretty much says the same thing, just in a more complicated way. I appreciate that you did read that, though, because there's a good rule of thumb when it comes to story writing. When you write a story, the thing that you write about should be the most important thing in your character's life. Yes. Now, in the first Mad Max movie, the thing that we saw Max go through was the death of his friend and the death of his wife and child. And for an ordinary person, yeah, those would be the most important things that ever happen in your life. And so those are the things that we'd focus on. Going back to campfire theory, liberating a compound of people from the terrifying clutches of a warlord or helping a lost group of children, you know, escape their oasis and make it to a city. Like those are very important things, but they're not the most important things in Max's life. No. Which is why the story of the Road Warrior, it's not really a story about Max. 
Right. You know, it's a story that this other group of people are telling about how Max just showed up and helped them out. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up. When we were covering Mad Max, the the first movie, we actually talked a lot about the idea of the most important events in a person's life. And you're right. This isn't the most important thing to Max. And he behaves that way throughout yeah. the movie. Like, he doesn't really care. Yeah. And he gets he gets poo-pooed because he doesn't really care. And which is unfair because you if you look at it from Max's perspective, he's just kinda uh yeah, doesn't matter to me. Mm. I've lost everything that I care about. Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's something that we're going to have to pay attention to, looking at Max as a character and trying to think, well, what keeps him going? He's lost everything. His family, his friends, his livelihood. He's wandered out into the wasteland, and so what keeps him going? What is his drive? What is the thing that keeps him from just pulling off to the side of the road, laying down in a ditch, and just sitting there until he dies? And I think... And I think that might be a challenging question to answer because of our weird POV-ness. Yeah. Our POV character is Max. That's who we're following. But it's through the narration and the memory of another character. Right. Another character that isn't as familiar with Max's history as we are. They, You know, this, this narrator never saw Mad Max. They don't know the story of Goose and Jesse and Sprague. So, so it might be a little bit difficult to decipher his motivations. Right. Because the narrator doesn't know his motivations. Yeah. And, I mean, Mel Gibson does not do a lot of talking in this movie. No. Far less than he did in the first one. I think he does end up speaking more in Thunderdome, but that's so far down the road from us from now. We don't really need to concern ourselves with Thunderdome. Yep. I don't think we need to concern ourselves much more with the movie today. We're going to put this to bed and pick up tomorrow with Minute 3. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share on social media to help others find the show. Thank you for joining us for minute number two of The Road Warrior. We'll see you tomorrow.